This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. The night sky for April 2019. Well, I'm afraid we have to wait up a little bit later to get dark skies now, or get up even earlier if we want to watch things before the dawn. Let's have a look anyway. As darkness falls, the constellation of Gemini, with its bright stars, Castor and Pollux, is setting in the west. Over to the south is the constellation of Leo, the lion, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. Between them is a fairly empty area of sky, but it's the constellation of Cancer, and if you look with binoculars, about halfway between the two, you should pick up a rather lovely open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Prysipe. Coming further over towards the east from Leo is the bright star Arcturus, at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. And rising up towards the zenith, we come to the three stars that make up the handle of the plough, which is almost overhead. Ideal with a small telescope for looking at some of the galaxies there. Of course, I'm sure you know that the two bright stars, Merak and Dupe, to the right of the plough, point up towards Polaris in the north. Going further north, towards the northern horizon, you'll come to the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus, which I shall mention in the highlights of the month. But first, let's have a look at the planets. Jupiter. It starts the month rising at about 1am and brightens from magnitude minus 2.3 to minus 2.5 as the month progresses, whilst the angular size increases slightly from 40 to 43 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises around 11pm, so it'll be due south around 3am. Sadly, it's heading towards the very southern part of the ecliptic. Currently it lies in the very lowest part of Ophiuchus, just above Scorpius. So as it crosses the meridian, due south, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees. Atmospheric dispersion will thus take its toll and an atmospheric dispersion corrector would greatly help to improve our views of the giant planet. Now Saturn, shining with a magnitude increasing from plus 0.6 to plus 0.5 during the month, rises about 3am on April the 1st, but about 1am by month's end. Its disk is 17 arc seconds across, and its rings, which are still nicely tilted to the line of sight, spanning some 36 arc seconds across. By the end of April, Saturn will be near the meridian just before sunrise, so morning twilight, if you can get up that early, will be the best time to observe it. But again, sadly, Saturn is now in Sagittarius, and at the lowest point of the ecliptic, so it will only reach an elevation again of about 14 degrees when due south. As with Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector will help improve our view. Mercury passed through inferior conjunction, that's between us and the Sun, on March the 15th, and at the start of the month rises low in the east-southeast about 30 minutes before the Sun. But shining at a magnitude of plus 0.9, 
only reaches an elevation of about 4 degrees. It reaches greatest elongation west, some 28 degrees from the Sun, on April 11th, and lies down to the left of Venus as the two inferior planets approach each other as the month progresses. On the 1st of April they lie about 10 degrees apart, but are closest at just over 4 degrees apart on the 16th, and that's the closest, in fact, for three years. One will need a very low horizon, and binoculars could well be needed to reduce the background glare. But of course, please do not use them after the sun has risen. Now Mars. Though fading from plus 1.5 to plus 1.6 magnitudes during the month, it remains prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset, setting some four hours after the sun at the start of April and less than three and a half hours by month's end. At an elevation of 34 degrees after sunset, it is moving through Taurus, passing between the Pleiades and Hyades clusters on the 4th, 5th of the month. On the 16th, it passes some 7 degrees north of Aldebaran, the red giant star that lies between us and the Hyades cluster. Its angular size falls from 4.6 down to 4.2 arc seconds during the month so one will not be able to see any details on its salmon pink surface, unless, of course, you have access to the Hubble Space Telescope. Venus. Venus begins April with a magnitude of minus 3.9, and with an angular size reducing from 13.1 to 11.6 arc seconds as it moves away from the Earth. However, at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase, increases from 81 to 86%, which is why the brightness remains constant throughout the month. On the 1st of April, it rises at about 5am, only 30 minutes before the sun, so binoculars might well be needed to spot it through the sun's glare. A very low horizon just south of east will be needed. But of course, don't use binoculars after the sun has risen. So finally, the highlights of the month. Well, as I briefly mentioned, on April the 5th, in the early evening, Mars will be seen to lie between the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. That should be nice. On April the 6th, something I don't normally do, but I'm going to mention three open clusters which are seen towards the northwest, at an elevation of about 35 degrees after sunset. You should be able to see the W shape constellation of Cassiopeia. Up to its left lies Perseus with its bright star Murfak. That star lies at the heart of the Alpha Persei cluster, very widely spread across the sky, and about 600 light years distance, having an age of about 60 million years. Now between Cassiopeia and Perseus can be seen with binoculars or a small telescope what is called the Perseus Double Cluster, that's the common name for the two open clusters, NGC 869 and NGC 884. These are quite young, with an age of only 13 million years, and they lie at a distance of about 7,500 light-years. There are more than 300 blue-white supergiant stars in each cluster. On April the 9th, in the early evening, one will see Mars and a crescent moon in Taurus, lying above the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. 
Now, something a bit different. On April the 10th, you have a chance to spot Asteroid 2 Pallas. That was the second asteroid to be discovered. It only shines at magnitude 8, so you'll need good binoculars or a small telescope. But it should be easy to find. I've mentioned Arcturus rising in the east in the evening. Up to its right, not far away, is a second bright star called Murfred. Exactly on the line between them, and just to the lower left of Murfred on that night, one should be able to spot Pallas. Binoculars, as I said, or a small telescope would be needed, but that would be rather nice. On the 15th of April, the moon will lie below the constellation of Leo. When looking at Leo, up to its left lies a very wide open cluster called the Coma star cluster, which is well seen in binoculars. On April the 24th, if you can get up early enough, before dawn, you could see Jupiter, Saturn and a waxing gibbous moon lying low above the horizon towards the south. And finally, two objects on the moon. On the nights of April the 14th and the 26th, the moon's terminator, close to which the shadows are longest and things sharp more easily, are two of the greatest craters on the moon, Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It is a relatively young crater, which is about 108 million years old, it has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. At full moon, the rays of the material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. Now further up, in the eastern part of Oceanus Procellarum, is the 800 million year old crater Copernicus, which lies beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's quite a young crater too, it has nice terrace walls, about 93 kilometres wide and nearly 4 kilometres deep. Both can be picked out with binoculars, but of course they're ideal targets for a small telescope. So let's hope you have some good viewing during April. Finally, just a quick advert. Um, over the last year or so I've been writing what I call my Astronomy Digest, and there are now nearly 60 articles about all things astronomical, a lot of them, in fact, about astro-imaging, which I, I quite like doing. So if you just put Astronomy Digest into a search engine like Google, it should come up, it tends to come up first, actually, and there might be something of interest for you to read there. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Movashanu and Samuel Lesk with the night sky where you are. Hi everyone and welcome to Galactic Conversations in April. I'm Sam Leskey. And I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. First of all, April is the Global Astronomy Month. But wait, it gets even better than that. From Sunday, March 31 to Sunday, April the 7th, is the 2019 International Dark Sky Week. It was created in 2003 by high school student Jennifer Barlow. International Dark Sky Week has grown to become a worldwide event and a key component of Global Astronomy Month. Each year it is held in April around Astronomy Day. Very exciting. Actually, very bright stars adorn the evening sky in April. Sirius, Canopus, Alpha, Centauri are visible in one go in the galactic center. 
starts making a reappearance in the southern sky. Yes, rising about 10.30 p.m. by the end of the month. The Milky Way looks fantastic in April and it stretches almost horizon to horizon and as the dense star fields and dust lanes of the galactic center become more visible, our galaxy creates quite a spectacle throughout the month. Just have to be here in the southern hemisphere. Those of you with a keen eye will be able to spot the Milky Way Kiwi rising in the early morning at the start of the month. Here is autumn again. Grapes have been harvested and are waiting to be transmuted into wine. And while we wait, we prepare for the long, beautiful nights in which the galactic centre climbs to the zenith. April is a Latin name, Aprilis, or it maybe means the mispronounced name of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, since the 1st of April was dedicated to Venus. The ancient Romans were celebrating Veneralia. Maybe it has a common root with aprire in Latin again to open as it's opening buds and blossoms. In, in Europe is the month of the first blossoms on the trees. Whereas here we also get the first taste of winter. As the odd southerly front roars up from the southern ocean to remind everyone what's on the way. Those closer to the tropics start seeing a bit less humidity as the dry season starts. The roaring southerly fronts also remind us of the super clear, cool and stable air that often sits behind those fronts and makes cool evenings of amazing and really stable sea. So what's the sun up to? The sun rises at about 7 in the morning and by the end of the month it's rising at 7.40 and it sets from around quarter past 7 in the evening at the start of the month to half past 5. Yes, that is correct. At the end of the month it sets at about half past 5. Because April is also the month we get rid of daylight saving. The dairy farmers will be much happier. So towards the end of the month, we would be enjoying a beautiful and long night. That's so astronomer's if, dream. That's if the sky will stay clear. Yes, with those warring southerlies coming through. April is more or less the month of the zodiacal constellation of the fish, Pisces, with the sun moving into the ram or Aries only on the 20th of April. That means... The sun is transiting both constellations of Pisces and Aries and so we cannot see them because of two reasons. One, the stars that made them are well behind the sun and two, it's kind of dangerous to look into the sun. Unless you have a solar telescope that is well maintained and is designed for looking at the sun. Then you can safely look at the sun, but only then. However, because the sun is in Aries, it means that 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiacal band is Scorpius, one of my favorite constellations, and I mean, you, you can tell why. This means Scorpius is opposite the sun, and it will be visible in the night sky. Scorpius is quite high in the late evening, by the end of the month, meaning that Sagittarius and the galactic center will also be not far behind. The most spectacular feature of the southern hemisphere sky and to say this is such an understatement, the Milky Way is so striking here in New Zealand that in the absence of a polar star, people could and should orientate themselves by the Milky Way for two reasons. One is because we think it is so amazing. And also because when it's at its highest, the Milky Way stretches here from north to south through the zenith. What else is better than that? Plus, it might remind people to be more sensible about lighting so we can preserve dark skies. You know, back in 2011, it was the first time when I really saw the Milky Way. Not that I thought I didn't see it before, I thought I did, but nah. 
It was in the Wairarapa back in 2011 and I got called to go outside and here was the galaxy rising and that's a sight I will never forget. I like to call it my my city of stars, but then it looks like the leg of the octopus is what we were talking about last month, since the center, it's almost on the horizon at sunset and is like really chubby and then it goes into a very thin strip at the end of it on the, on the western horizon. But from the rising core all the way to its setting edge, from Scorpius to Taurus, is one glorious panorama. The city of stars stretches through the sky southeast to northwest this month. The Maori have three names for the same asterisms or groupings of stars at different times of the year. What we know as Scorpius is, for instance, at this time of the year, Manaya Kitarangi, the guardian of the skies. It's a great time of the year to get the telescope out in the early evening. Now the daylight saving is almost finished and just browse the star fields, catching glimpses of nebula and star clusters and heaps of globular clusters, especially around Scorpius. So what can we see? I call April the month of the ropes of stars. They're like ropes of stars flowing through the sky. Imagine two arches, one smaller running through the northern part of the sky, that is the ecliptic, and the other one larger running through the zenith, that is the galaxy. So there are bright stars on the ecliptic and there are bright stars throughout the galaxy. On the ecliptic, through the northeastern sky, this lower arch of the ecliptic marks the plane of our solar system and it's bearing the zodiacal constellations. They intersect the Milky Way right on the horizon at the start of the month in the late evening. To see things on the ecliptic, one should simply turn towards that part of the sky that carries the memory of the path of the sun, or of the moon for that matter. Let's swipe them from west to east. Setting first in the evening, at visually towards the outskirts of the galaxy, as we can see it from the Earth, and at about 65 light years away, is the red giant Aldebaran, very low on the horizon and setting at about 8.30pm by the middle of the month in Taurus at 0.86 magnitude, so very bright. Then hot white castor and orange pollux in Gemini at 1.93 and 1.14 magnitudes each, followed by blue-white regulus at magnitude 1.36 in Leo, almost due north. And blue-white speaker in 0.98 magnitude in Virgo in the northeast. Just rising near the centre of the galaxy is another red giant, Antares, 1.06 magnitude and 604 light years from us. A very, very huge star. Other bright stars throughout the galaxy, the larger arch, outside of the ecliptic are a bunch of bright stars, including the famous Betelgeuse, a red giant, a 0.42 magnitude, and Rigel, Another giant, but blue, at 0.13, both in Orion. Then the dogs of the Celestial River, because they're guarding it, each from one side, are yellowish-white Procyon, the small dog at 0.34 magnitude, and Sirius, the big dog, at minus 146 magnitude. Sirius is a blue giant and the brightest star in the sky. The big dog constellation finally looks the right way up, heading also towards the western horizon from it. Turn your gaze left. Nearby comes Canopus at minus 0.72 magnitude, the second brightest star in the sky, well at least for the next few thousand years. Eventually it will be the brightest star in the sky. Canopus is not in the white band of the Milky Way. 
Standing tall, Canopus is high in the sky as it likes to be at this time of the year after sunset. Canopus is a circumpolar star from Wellington, which means that it goes around in circles in 23 hours and 56 minutes, riding something that is like a celestial ferris wheel of the southern skies. A giant wheel that never stops, with the south celestial pole at the centre and a bunch of other stars that look like a circle. On the Vesperis wheel, another bunch of stars is Crooks, or the Southern Cross. It's no stranger to the Northern Hemisphere, and it was entirely visible as far north as Britain in the 4th millennium BC. The Greeks could see it too, but since then, the precession of the equinoxes, the wobble of Earth, this gyroscopic dance on the orbit has changed the sky a lot. So now Crooks is only visible in the Northern Hemisphere from as far south as 25 degrees latitude north. Florida Keys, Puerto Rico, the islands of the Caribbean, as well as Hawaii, are its northern limit of visibility. Near the Southern Cross, there is a dark patch of dust that masks the light that comes from the stars behind it, and that is known as the Cossack, or the Flounder here. Maori call it the Flounder, the Patiki. Inside the Cossack, the jewel box is one of my favorite sites that I visit over and over and over with the telescope. And there's nothing like looking through at the jewel box by looking looking through the antique telescope at Carter Observatory, the giant Thomas Cook nine and three quarter inch refractor. And you can see the colours. Looks amazing. Lower down on the path of the Milky Way, the two pointers look now as if they're hanging from the Southern Cross. First comes Beta Centauri, the genitive for Centaurus, the name of the constellation. Then the famous Alpha Centauri. Our closest neighbour that we can see. Easily. With the naked eye. Without a telescope. Because, of course, there is Proxima Centauri. A little bit closer. But a whole lot smaller and nowhere near as bright. Because it's a red dwarf. Yeah. So, the binocular objects for April. Uh, there's quite a few. A few good ones. Of course, it's not all of them, but it is a nice uh, selection of objects that you can check out in the southern sky. And a lot of these objects will, be, of course, be familiar to northern sky viewers, but there's some real gems for the southern sky. But anyway, M44, the Beehive Cluster... And right there in the middle of Cancer is a great cluster to have a look at, especially in a pair of binoculars. M42 in Orion, a classic. Always looks great no matter what you look at. Tarantula Nebula, right there in the large Magellanic Cloud. Eta Carine. Hanging out just above the Southern Cross in the Milky Way. And of course, Omega Centauri, that massive globular cluster that looks amazing. And in a pair of binoculars, it still looks great. There's actually a competition here in the Southern Hemisphere between Omega Centauri and 47 Tucane, which one is more beautiful. Then, not too far from Eta Nebula is the Southern Pleiades, a lovely big cluster that looks fantastic in binoculars. And, of course, the Jewel Box, which we just talked about. And then there is this galaxy, Centaurus A, that if you try really, really hard, you can just see the band, the dark band in the center. And that's what gives it its name, the Hamburger Galaxy, because it sort of kind of looks like a hamburger. And then the classical Alpha Centauri star. Alpha Centauri is actually a double star. If you look at it in a pair of binoculars, you can see the two of them together. Very pretty. I don't know if you can separate them in a pair of binoculars, but you definitely can with the Thomas Cook telescope at Carl. It looks fantastic. Telescope objects for April. Nice and high in the sky in the Southern Hemisphere is, of course, the fantastic spiral galaxy known as the Southern Pinwheel, or M83. Sombrero Galaxy, M104. M68, which is a really lovely globular cluster. 
And of course, this is where we can also see some of those northern sky delights, like the Leo triplet. And sure, it's three galaxies, so it's pretty faint, but um, for a bit of averted vision and a good-sized telescope, you should be able to see those. And of course, Scorpius is coming up, so M80, M4, and M7, here we come. And because this is 2019, and we also have some planets going and coming through the skies, we thought we were going to talk a little bit about them as well. Because the good news for April is the planets are coming back. Yay. Not that they you know, actually went anywhere, but they're coming back to the southern sky. So I don't have to wake up in the morning to have a look at the planets. We do this month for a few. Of course, not all of them are coming back, and nothing like last year, but still in the spectacular glory that we've become used to. For those who live on the mountaintops, with a nice clear view of the southeastern horizon, you'll see Jupiter rise just before 11pm at the start of the month, and by the end of the month, Jupiter will be starting to appear around 8pm. Of course, to actually get a reasonable view of Jupiter, you're going to need to wait a couple of hours until it rises, which is still a quite reasonable time by the end of the month. Jupiter is exceptionally easy to find, because it's right there in the middle of that very famous object Milky Way Kiwi, which of course, I'm sure you all know where it is, quite close to the galactic centre, just between Scorpius and Sagittarius, if you're not quite sure where Milky Way Kiwi is. Jupiter is huge and bright with a magnitude of minus 2.2, and this is because it really is huge, with a diameter of 142,984,000 kilometers, just over 11 Earth's diameters. Its huge distance from us of around 750 million kilometers means that even this massive planet won't outshine Venus as minus 4 magnitude. Jupiter is a great sight in binoculars as the Galilean moons are clearly visible depending on their positions. Of course, also coming up in the night sky is Saturn, which is about two hours behind Jupiter in the march along the ecliptic. So it's very much an early morning planet for most of the month, before being visible at a good altitude by midnight at the end of the month. Saturn is a bit further away from the Milky Way between Sagittarius and Capricornus. Of course, by a bit further away, we mean the angular distance. In distance terms from Earth, it is 1.449 billion kilometers, with an angular dimension of about 17.1 arc seconds, so pretty small. The distance doesn't change much during the month, only about 70 million kilometers. Saturn's crowning jewel is its rings, which look fantastic. I think every astronomer that I have ever spoken to can remember the first time they saw Saturn. But also, I remember every person who came at the observatory looked through the Thomas Cook telescope and what they said when they first saw Saturn with wow. their eyes. Yes. Of course, to see the rings of Saturn, you need to have a telescope or be about 1.1 billion kilometers closer to the gas giant. Can we do that? Well, if you had a rocket, I suppose. Anyway, clearly it's not that easy to be 1.1 billion kilometres closer. So let's think about why we can't see them with the naked eye. The human eye has a range of angular resolution of between 1 and 4 arc minutes. So it's not quite a large aperture telescope. Depending on the eye, of course, and atmospheric conditions, and that's why the range is between 1 and 4. Some of us have good eyes and other of us, one of the eyes are getting a bit old. The size of Saturn's rings are about 46 arc seconds when they are at their absolute biggest, so significantly smaller than what the best human eye in the best conditions can resolve. So the best you can see of Saturn with the naked eye is its beautiful golden colour. So and you're saying that it. so you're saying that the people who look at Saturn 
can't even see its ears. No, it's impossible to see the rings of Saturn with the human eye. It's just not big enough. Sure, if the human eye had a much larger aperture of, say, a few inches, that would be a different story, but then we'd all look a bit funny, wouldn't we? Yeah, like night owls. Yeah. But we are night owls. Well, yeah, well, astronomers are. <laughs> Mars. What's happening to Mars? Well, unfortunately, Mars doesn't do much during the month, other than skirt along across Taurus to Gemini. And given it's now 344 million kilometres away, and only about 4.1 arc seconds in diameter, it's not going to be much to look at anyway. In New Zealand, we also miss out on a conjunction of Venus and Neptune on the 10th of April, when the two planets get to within 18 minutes of each other. At the same time, Venus and Mercury get very close as well, at about 5 degrees apart. Northern Hemisphere observers will have to get up early and have a really good view of the horizon to see it. Maybe you could send us a picture. The Moon. The Moon is new on the 5th of April and full on 19th of April. It's still quite close to the Earth during the full Moon at about 3... 168,000 kilometers. Not quite the overhyped supermoon that gets people excited, but not so far off it. No, it's not the supermoon, blood wolf, banana moon, or whatever it's called. Banana moon, I like that. Yeah, through the tropical dimension. <laughs> so, thank you so much for listening to us for April 2019 Night Sky from here, from Carter Observatory, Space Place at Carter Observatory. In the Southern Hemisphere, we wish you clear skies and good night. Happy viewing. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. I'm Sam Liski. And you've listened to Galactic Conversations. <laughs>